On Uncommon Law, we've covered a lot of topics. Non-compete clauses, affirmative action, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the bar exam, and who could forget the business of bees? I also remember the bees. But there's one thing we've never talked about. Haunted houses. In honor of Halloween, we present to you a very scary episode of Uncommon Law. So turn off the lights and prepare to be terrified by the law. And hey, maybe even learn a little something along the way. I'm your host, Matthew Schwartz, and this is Uncommon Law, Halloween edition. Whether you walk, run, or hide, bring your running shoes and prepare to meet your doom. Our tale of terror begins in San Diego, where the haunted trail has been scaring human beings for years. It's the tale of a mile-long path through the woods, where zombies and ghouls jump out and scare you to within an inch of your life, And it's the tale of someone so frightened that he needed to hire a lawyer. This was a really interesting case. It was back in October of 2011. This is Chris Ardalan. I'm a plaintiff's personal injury trial attorney. Chris doesn't just handle run-of-the-mill personal injuries. Chris handles catastrophic personal injuries. It isn't the simple whiplash type stuff, but it's more people that end up with having surgeries, fractures, significant or injuries like paralysis or or death is what we normally handle. Which brings us to Chris's client, Scott Griffin, who purchased a ticket to the Haunted Trail. You know, it was supposed to give kind of a scare to the people that get the tickets. They want a good time on Halloween and uh, most people go through the experience and and have a great experience. Unfortunately for Scott, unbeknownst to him, this specific haunted house had a scare known as the Carrie effect. Chris is talking about the horror movie Carrie, based on the novel by Stephen King. And warning, this part is a spoiler, I guess? Except the movie's been out for almost 50 years now, so at the very end of the movie... In a dream sequence, a character is laying flowers on Carrie's grave. When all of a sudden, Carrie's bloody hand shoots out from the ground and grabs the person's arm. It's known as one of the earliest jump scares in a modern horror film. Anytime you're watching a new horror movie and something jumps out at you when you don't expect it, Carrie is the film that made that a thing. Here's Stephen King talking about what makes it so effective. Well, I think people are frightened of almost anything, you know, as far as uh, the unknown, anything unexpected, anything that's going to jump out of them at them in the dark. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can get people with their defenses down and get them in the open, you can grab them and do a job on them. And that's what I like to do. What, um... Did you always have these thoughts inside of you, or did you just see it as, 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 as a way... The haunted trail got Scott Griffin with his defenses down. And as King put it, it did a job on him. Scott is walking through the exit. 
And so they think, okay, we got through the maze and we're basically done. Except they're not done. Because there's one more scare. We asked Scott to come on the show and tell us about that final scare. He didn't want to reopen old wounds. Literal wounds. But Scott did talk about what happened at a deposition. This is Scott's story, voiced by an actor. Eventually, I walked through the exit gate. And what made you think that was truly the exit to the event? To me, it was clear. The entire event was gated off. Inside, everything is roped off. You're on a path. It's very clear where you're going. And the gates and the exit, to me, were clear that we were done with the experience. Once they were through the exit, Scott and his friends regrouped and were walking back toward the car. And then, that one last scare. Someone was heading toward Scott, holding a chainsaw. He came right into my space with his chainsaw. And I tried to back away from him, and he just kept following me. And I would tell him to back off. He wouldn't back off. And I started to try to get away from him. And boy, he seemed to really enjoy that. So you told him, get away. He didn't get away? Not at all. And then I backed up. Did he say anything? No, he started his chainsaw. And his chainsaw was going, and I really got scared. He was literally coming at me. He selected me. So you felt this was an active chainsaw with an operating chain? Yes, it was an active chainsaw. You could literally smell the gas. You could literally hear the sound and everything. And the more I backed away, the more he followed me. I asked him to stop. He wouldn't. The chainsaw didn't have a chain, but that distinction was lost on Scott, who thought a random crazy man was coming after him. So Scott ran. He was literally running after me, and I really felt unsafe. And then I started getting really fearful that something was going to happen because here's some stranger, I don't even know who he is, with a live, active chainsaw running after me with it. That's when I asked him to stop and stop, and he wouldn't. I tried to escape him. I couldn't escape. It got really weird and got very scary. Yes, I was fearful for my safety. Big time. Scott doesn't know how long he ran for. 30 seconds? A minute, maybe? At first, he says he hid behind his friends, trying to get them to make the guy stop. But his friends didn't know what was going on either. So I was running up further. And then I was looking back to see if he was still behind me because I could hear the damn thing. And that's when I fell. Scott fell forward and broke the fall with his hands, but he was running so fast that he fell with enough force to break both of his wrists. The guy chasing him? He finally turned off his chainsaw and walked away. Did he say anything? Nothing whatsoever. Not even, hi, boo, are you okay? Didn't help me up, nothing. My friends had to come over and get me up. So he just walked away? He turned off his chainsaw, and that was it. 
Over the next few days, Scott Griffin's pain became unbearable. So he reached out to Chris Ardalan, who took the case and sued the Haunted Hotel, which operates the Haunted Trail, for negligence in failing to properly train and supervise its employees and assault. Okay, it's time for a little Torts 101. For our lawyer listeners, think of this as a 1L refresher. Uh, For everyone else, you're about to get a crash course. I'd like to introduce you to today's torts professor, Larry Levine. I'm Larry Levine. I teach torts at University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law. Professor Levine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about torts with me. There's nothing that makes me happier. Okay. So actually, should we define what a tort is first? I could spend hours as a law professor on that question. Why don't you spend 10 seconds? And it's been 10 seconds, show that it can be done. A tort is a civil wrong that is not a breach of contract. Civil wrong that is not a breach of contract. That's still confusing to me. Even as a legal journalist, I've got to parse that one out. Okay, fair enough. So what it means is it's not criminal and it's not contract. So instead of what it's not, let's talk about what it is. So it's redress for injuries. The kinds of things that we read about most often in the newspapers, car accidents, defamation, fistfights. It's how you have a legal remedy, how you can get money. There we go. We're getting getting somewhere. We're getting closer. You can get money, compensation for the injuries you've suffered due to somebody else's wrongful behavior. Okay, so we've got two torts here, negligence and assault. Let's talk about assault, because that's really the heart of this one, I think. Assault is an intentional tort, uh, where you are purposely setting out to scare someone. So it's a really old tort. It's been around since the 1100s. So it's basically creating intentional infliction of apprehension of being physically harmed by being physically battered. And I want to just clear something up. Uh, assault in the ordinary, regular person sense means to physically injure someone. Uh, but assault in the legal sense is a little different, right? It means to make someone fear that they are about to be physically injured. That's where we get the phrase assault and battery. They're afraid that they're about to suffer a battery, which is a physical, physical beating. And what do we have to prove to successfully allege assault? So assault would require the injured party, the plaintiff, to prove that the defendant intentionally placed that plaintiff in fear of an imminent harmful contact. And the plaintiff has to prove each of those elements by more likely than not to recover damages for that. Okay, so Scott would have to demonstrate to the jury that the haunted trail intentionally placed him in fear of physical harm, which seems like a no-brainer, right? The guy was coming after Scott with a chainsaw. Scott's lawyer thought he had a really good shot at proving all the elements of the tort of assault. Hey, no means no, right? (laughs) I mean, when you say stop, they should listen and move on. Um, it's it's not okay to, to push someone to the point that you know that they could run and fall. Unfortunately for Scott Griffin, before his lawyer could get in front of a jury, he had to get past a certain legal hurdle unique to this type of case. 
Because Scott wasn't confronted with a chainsaw maniac when he was just walking around in a park. He wasn't confronted with a chainsaw while he was picking out apples in a grocery store. Scott was confronted with a chainsaw at a haunted house. An activity that carries certain inherent risks. So, to get to the jury, Scott's lawyer had to overcome the main defense to these kinds of torts. And that defense is called assumption of risk. So originally, the cases that, that came about that created this doctrine dealt with sporting activities. So for example, you want to go play football. There's some risks that you're going to have in just simply playing football. Like, let's say they tackle you after the whistle is blown and, and they injure you. Right there. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's uncalled for, man. Well, that is unbelievable. you voluntarily participated in that sporting activity, and that type of injury is inherent in the activity. And if you suffer that injury in that activity, then the law says that there's no duty for anyone to protect you against that. And you can't sue the football organizers or the coach or anyone there because you assumed the risk. And the principle doesn't just apply during sporting events. It applies to any activity that's inherently risky. Here's Professor Levine. There are old cases that talked about this a lot. One that I think is most similar is this very famous case involving a ride at an amusement park called the Flopper. I think that tells you a lot right there. It's called the Flopper. And it's a conveyor belt made of rubber, and it jerks back and forth. And you're paying this money because you're trying to stay upright. And it's jerking, and people fall, and they fall on each other, and there's great married methods and laughter. I remember this one. You're talking about Murphy versus Steeplechase Amusement Company. This case is from the 20s, like the 1920s. It was a while ago. Yeah, yeah I was very young then. And this guy's there with his fiance. He's like, watch me do this. And so he goes on the flopper, and he flops. And he breaks his kneecap. And of course, he says, as anyone would, as the person in the haunted trails would say, I agreed to be scared, but I didn't agree to have my wrist broken, right? So this guy's like, oh, I agreed to flop around on this conveyor belt, but I didn't agree to have my kneecap broken. And then in one of the best law opinions ever, ever enough, that people listening read it, and they haven't gotten to law school yet, they're gonna to wanna to go to law school. This famous Judge Cardozo, he says, volenti non fit injuria. And I don't know much Latin, but it means to the willing, there is no harm. And then he says, what I think is the best line ever in a case, he says, the timorous may stay at home. Nobody is making you go on the flapper. You're choosing to go on the flapper. You're choosing to go into the office haunted house and haunted trail. And why? Because you wanted to be frightened or you wanted to be flopped around. Well, you got flopped around and you got frightened. And them's the breaks, you know? So the haunted trail gets hit with this lawsuit and they play the assumption of risk card. They tell the court, Scott can't bring this lawsuit. He's barred. He assumed the risk. Of course, Scott's attorney, Chris Ardalan, was ready with a response. We said, look, the assumption of risk is within the boundaries of the maze, but he had exited it and he said he didn't want to participate. At that point, he withdrew his consent. 
Scott was still on the Haunted Trail's property, but he thought the recreational activity was over. There was an exit, but it wasn't real. It was part of the maze, in essence, to trick people to think that it was over when the experience was actually not over. That was the whole point of the carry effect. One last surprise scare. So, does assumption of risk still bar the suit? When we return, we'll hear from the owner of the haunted trail, who says Scott Griffin knew exactly what he was getting himself into. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Greg DeFada owns the Haunted Trail. He did not respond to multiple requests for an interview. But we've got those depositions. Here, in his own words, read by an actor, is Greg DeFada. He ran. He chose to run. You can't chase a human that doesn't run. If he had just stood there and said, stop, then it's not fun. You move on. You scare somebody else. But having said that, he chose to run. Yeah, I think it's absolutely appropriate to chase him. I do. On its website, the Haunted Trail tells people not to run. They say that running is the number one cause of injuries. Make sure to follow the rules and don't run, they say, and you should be fine. But they also say one more thing. Um, You say that if you run, we're going to, quote, chase you down like the chickens you are? Yes. So you understand there's a risk to people for running to get hurt, and then you're telling them you're going to chase them and push them to run? We're not going to push them to run. You can't push somebody to run. You know, you just paid us to scare you. If you decide to run, we are going to complete the scare. The Haunted Trail didn't just put that line on its website. It also played an orientation audio tape for every group who attended the attraction. Do not touch or grab our creatures. Among the many disclaimers was the following line, quote, You will be scared shitless and try to run away, but in the end, our creatures will chase you down like the chickens that you are. They are putting people in a position to run, knowing full well that people are going to get injured. Again, Scott Griffin's attorney, Chris Ardalan. We argued all this as, look, this is inherently increasing the risk to the activity that they're consenting to first. And secondly, that they are being reckless here with people's health and safety. The Haunted Trail knows people can get hurt from running. And normally, when an injury is foreseeable, that strengthens the argument that the defendant breached their duty of care and caused the plaintiff's injuries. Here's Professor Levine. This is exactly what they intended to scare the crap out of out of 
people. That was why people were paying, right? And they were doing their job. So they wanted to scare the crap out of this person. And the person was frightened. And there were consequences of that, of that fear. But remember, this is not a straightforward tort case. Context matters. This case is about an inherently risky activity. So that line, if you run, we're going to chase you down like the chickens that you are, also shows that the guests know that if they run, they will be chased. In other words, one might argue, they are assuming the risk. And then... Because of the context, the defendant gets to then turn around and say, oh, exactly. And so when you agreed to assume these risks, this was a foreseeable consequence of the risk you assume. Because I'm sure that the plaintiff, Mr. Griffin, had he been told, you're going to break your wrists. Both of your wrists are going to be broken. He wouldn't say, no problem, I agree to have my wrist broken, right? He never would have agreed to have his wrist broken, nor would Mr. Murphy have agreed to have his kneecap broken on the flopper. You're not agreeing to the injury, you're agreeing to the excitement that includes the risk of injury, including what happened to you. There are limits. I'm sure if a disgruntled employee had jumped out with a real knife and started stabbing Mr. Griffin, he would not have assumed the risk of that, right? That's not part of the deal. That's so far outside what would have been anticipated. So there are going to be limits, but doing what you're being paid to do well is going to be protected. Even with the assumption of risk doctrine, Scott's attorney still thought he had a strong case. Listen, I, I have a, an excellent track record of winning cases. I always tell people, I go, you know, I don't think Michael Jordan ever took a shot he didn't think he was going to make. I felt very confident about being able to, to carve an exception to this primary assumption of risk. Scott thought the attraction was over, but the trial court said it didn't matter what Scott Griffin thought. The court ruled that under the assumption of risk doctrine, the haunted trail didn't breach any duty to Griffin. And the appeals court affirmed, writing, the risk that a patron will be frightened, run, and fall is inherent in the fundamental nature of a haunted house attraction. The court said, no, it doesn't matter what he expected or thought. Once you kind of consent to the experience, you consent to all the risks essentially, and, and consent's not required. You're participating voluntarily. You're waving, knowing that there's these risks of running and falling, and you're, you're saying, I want to get scared. Scott was scared, and he ran, and that's all part of the experience. Scott paid money, the court wrote, to experience extreme fright, being chased, within the physical confines of the haunted trail by a chainsaw-carrying maniac is a fundamental part and inherent risk of this amusement. Griffin voluntarily paid money to experience it, the court said, and he received exactly what he paid for. Oh, my God. 
Scott Griffin isn't the first person to sue over getting injured at a haunted house. And he certainly won't be the last. Sometimes people run from a chainsaw inside the house, sometimes from a chainsaw after they think the fun is over. But in case after case, in states across the country, courts find that being so scared that you freak out, run, and get hurt is all part of the experience. In the end, in the eyes of the law, the haunted house always wins. Uncommon Law is written and produced by me, Matthew Schwartz. I also did the sound design for this episode. My editor is Josh Block, who's the executive producer of videos and podcasts here at Bloomberg Industry Group. Special thanks to Jonathan Hortarte for our creepy Halloween cover art. And an additional thank you to Tom Taylor and Cheska Antonelli. And I'd also like to thank our actors, Joseph Mantioni, who played Greg DeFada, and especially Jacob Levy, who played the role of Scott Griffin. If you need an actor who can work miracles, look for Jacob Levy. They're based in Los Angeles. If you liked this show, please review it on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. It really helps spread the word. And if you have any comments or feedback, send us an email at uncommonlaw at bloombergindustry.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Happy Halloween. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com podcasts. 